Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your goodness and kindness in giving you, giving us your word in a language we can understand here this morning. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who you promise will take this word and bring it to our hearts as we prayerfully study it together. We pray that you would speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's play a bit of guess who. Who am I talking about? He has a beard. People like to go to him with a list of requests of what they want. If you're good enough, he will bring you presents. But don't do too many bad things or he might cross you off the list. In fact, he's watching you right now to see if you're being bad or good. Once a year, people like to tell stories about him to their children. Who am I talking about? That's right, it's God. Or at least it's many people's view of God. Maybe it's no surprise that you hear increasingly of primary school children confused about whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. Is it Santa? Is it some guy called Jesus? What's the difference anyway? Because, you know, both are largely irrelevant to our lives, but maybe worth remembering at Christmas so that we don't miss out on whatever perks might be available, like, you know, Christmas presents or keeping in with God just in case life after death turns out to be a thing. And when you think of God, how do you think of him? This is a question that matters more than you might think it does because it affects how we relate to him. Is he a spoiled sports tyrant just out to kind of catch us out when we're least expecting it? Or is he a benevolent but weak grandfather kind of figure? Now, you might think he's definitely neither of those. But let me ask you this. What was God doing before he created the world? Was he kind of hanging around for eternity, kind of humming to himself, looking for something to do? Do we think of God in eternity past as actually a bit of a loner, distant, silent, a bit like a rich recluse living by himself in a massive old castle. Everything he could ever want at his fingertips, but no one to share it with. What would the motivation for creating the world be for that kind of God? Presumably to finally have some people to talk to. Phew, now I've got something to do, he might think. How would it feel to be the creature of such a God? being invited into relationship with him. Surely not much different from being invited to visit that, that rich recluse in his distant, crumbling castle. Imagine the massive, long dining table in the castle at which he's become accustomed to dining at by himself. You know, he's been by himself for eternity, this guy. Are we really going to find things to talk about? Do you see how it matters how we think of God? If someone tells me they don't believe in God, what I want to say back is, well, hang on a minute, which God don't you believe in? Because there are plenty of distant, weak, tyrannical, weird, spoil sport, control freak, awkward gods that I don't believe in either. But guess what? 
None of those is the God we meet in the Bible. And as John opens his gospel with these famous words, his aim, as he tells us uh, right at the end of the gospel, is to show his readers how they too can have life, how they can have eternal life by believing in Jesus the Messiah. Eternal life, Jesus tells us in John chapter 17, is knowing God. That's how you can sum it up. Eternal life is knowing God. We don't know a lot about the new heavens and the new earth, but we do know that God will dwell among his people and we will know him. So it all comes back to that question, is this God worth knowing? Do we want to know him? Or would we be better off forgetting about him and doing something else with however many years we have before we die? John wants to help us answer that question, and he does that by starting with the word. So first, you can see on the, on the handout, the word who is with God and who is God, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning, says John, before anything was made, there was the word. And one of the reasons we heard Genesis chapter 1 in the first reading was to show the clear echoes of the opening verses of the Bible that we see in these verses in the New Testament in John's Gospel. In Genesis, we see how God spoke the universe into existence. So whether we're talking six-day creation or a much longer period of time isn't really the point here. The point, either way, is that God spoke the universe into life, into being. And throughout the Old Testament, God's speech is massively significant. When God says something, it happens. And the Old Testament emphasises this to the point of presenting the word of God as an independent kind of personified being. That's how it kind of comes across in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord comes to the prophet Isaiah. God is said to have created by his word and also to deliver his people by sending his word in the Psalms. And now in the New Testament, we discover that the word is not just a kind of attribute, an extension of God, but the word is with God and the word is God. And this gets us thinking about what Christians call the Trinity. Now, you won't find the word Trinity in the Bible, but Trinity is the best way Christians have come up with to sum up how God has revealed himself to us in the Bible and in Jesus. Because, spoiler alert, look down at verse 14, and you will see that the word became flesh. The word is Jesus. The word is God the Son. And John is saying, from eternity past, from before the creation of the world, he was with God and he was God. But even just saying that short sentence, he was with God and he was God, it makes us go, well, hang on a minute, what on earth does that mean? Because at face value, it's a bit confusing. You know, which is it then? Is the word sort of separate from God or is the word God? How can both be true? And people sometimes approach the Christian teaching about the Trinity as if it's a bit of a sort of philosophical or mathematical conundrum. You know, how can one plus one plus one equal one? And then along with that, well-meaning people come up with little analogies that they think might help the situation. You say, ah, well, you know, what you need to understand is that the Trinity is like a shamrock leaf. 
or a three-leaf clover. You know, a leaf divided into parts, but it's in fact one leaf. Or they say the Trinity is like an egg, yolk, egg white, shell, three parts, one egg. Just don't boil the egg. Or, or like water, ice, water, steam. And scientists might wax lyrical about the, the triple point of water where under pressure, ice, water and steam can coexist at the same temperature. All water, but in different forms. Hmm. Well, in one sense, if all you're trying to say is that there is a sense in which God is three and a sense in which God is one, well, okay, that's okay as far as it goes. But the thing is, God hasn't revealed himself as a leaf or as an egg or as a liquid. He has revealed himself as eternally three persons, as Father, as the Son, or the the Word as he's called here, and the Holy Spirit. Three persons who together are the one God. Now sometimes when you read of God in the Bible, it means God the Father. Sometimes it means God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So verse 1, the word was with God because God the Son is distinct from his Father. They are two distinct members of the Trinity. But the word was God. God the Son is himself fully God, just as the, the Father is fully God and just as the Holy Spirit is fully God. Each of them is not part of God, but is themselves fully God. Now, people like the Jehovah's Witnesses that you might meet if they knock on your door or you get, chat, get chatting to them, or people who call themselves Unitarians, they will argue that Jesus was himself not actually God, but was just a man. A very great man, a sort of superman even, different from all other men, people, but just a man. But the thing is, that's a belief that started way back in the 4th century AD, if not before, with a guy called Arius. Now, this week on Thursday, it was St. Nicholas's Day. Did you know that? Now, if you're from mainland Europe, I think they make a bit of a bigger deal of this over there, so you might be aware of that. But it is the same St. Nicholas as the other, the other one, let the listener understand. But St. Nicholas ought to be better known as one of the guys who defended this truth that Jesus is the eternal word who is with God and who is God. And there was a council in the year 325 AD called the Council of Nicaea, where they discussed this. Now, Arius was there, and legend has it that St. Nicholas was so enraged with Arius's heresy that in the course of the theological debate, he slapped Arius in the face. For St. Nicholas, it was not so much deck the halls with boughs of holly as deck the heretic. Well, the, The Council of Nicaea and another council a few years later helped to give rise to the Nicene Creed. And we're going to say it later to help us understand what it's about. That is summing up the teaching of the Bible about the Trinity by saying that the Son is of one substance with the Father. Arius was trying to say, no, no, they're they're two separate natures, two substances, in effect, two different gods, with the Father very much superior to the Son. But the church realised that the Bible teaches that they are one substance, one God, not two. 
So put all this together, and you can see why the, the various well-meant illustrations don't help. Apart from the fact that God is not an impersonal object, like an egg or a leaf, you know, the shell of an egg is only part of the egg. It's not the whole egg. So you either end up with one God divided up, or you end up with three gods, and neither of those options is the God of the Bible. The idea of water as ice, liquid, steam, implies that God takes different forms at different times. There's no sense of distinct relationship between father and son if they're just the same thing expressed in different ways at different times. And the leaf implies that when we say the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, actually there's a kind of fourth thing behind them, a cold, hard substance separate from them, which each of them kind of are. And so God really is that fourth thing. And the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are just faces, but God is hiding behind them. And a chappy called Hilarious, believe it or not, funny name, literally, or otherwise known as Hillary of Poitiers, uh, helped those 4th century Christians explain why that wouldn't do either. He said, drill down into God, try and go behind Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all you will find is the Father loving the Son, and the Father sending his Spirit, and so on. This is what it means to be the one God, because only that does justice to the idea that the word is with God and he is God. Now, why does all this matter? It matters because of that question about who God is in himself. What was God doing for eternity before the creation of the world? Was he kind of hanging around on his lonesome, twiddling his thumbs, needing to create some people to talk to? No, he is three persons who are the one God. And before the creation of the world, these three persons lived in perfect, united relationship with one another, a per- perfect relationship of love. Three persons loving one another, but not as three separate gods who might turn on a coin toss and, and disagree or fall out, or, you know, you, um, which God am I talking to? Because if I talk to this one, is this one going to agree? Or are they? No, that's not. It's one God, three persons, three persons loving one another, each fully God in themselves, but together being the one God. How then does it feel to be invited into relationship with a God who is not a solitary loner, the rich recluse in his castle, but three persons loving one another? Surely it's the difference between being invited to dinner with the person who spent eternity by himself and being invited to join a family. Now, families are funny old things, and not every family is the best example, but the family of the triune Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that we're talking about is the most loving family ever. And the love of this family has now overflowed into creating a world and a people who are invited to join in that love that's been going on for eternity. Can you see the difference? It matters how we think of God. And this is why it can't be true, as people often claim, that, you know, for example, Muslims and Christians really both worship the same God, but just in different ways. Because think about it. You see, the Quran says Allah is, as he is in himself, is loving. You know, that is who he is. He's loving. But you have to ask, well, how do you know? Because who did he love before he made the world and had some people to love? He's not kind of loving in and of himself. But at the heart of the Christian faith, 
is the word who in the beginning was with God and who is God, eternally loving, eternally in loving relationship in Trinity. That is intrinsic to what it means to be God. And then John continues, verses 3 to 5, we see secondly, the word who is life and who is light. The word who is life and who is light. The the love between Father and Son and Holy Spirit that is implied in verses 1 and 2 overflowed into the creation of the world. How did God create the world? Well, Genesis 1 says he did it through a word, by speaking. John says he did it through the word. Jesus is God speaking to his world. Again, Genesis 1 was, was keen to emphasize that the, word God, the world God created was good, perhaps in contrast with other accounts of creation that were, 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 were circulating in ancient times with the idea that the, the, the world was an accident or inherently evil and best withdrawn from and avoided. No, the Bible says no. The world in the beginning was good. God delighted in it. And that's no surprise because in eternity, God had a lot of practice in delighting in another. It comes naturally then to delight in what he has made. And then if he is the creator, and the word is the one through whom all things were made, and without him nothing was made that was made, well, that makes us his creatures. And the news that we are his creatures, is that good news to hear? Well, if he's the distant, white-bearded loner in his castle, well, we might slightly fear what it would mean to be created by him. You know, would we actually not be better off attempting to rebel? Even if such attempts were futile, they would at least be noble. You know, like the prisoners of war in World War II, who at least according to the war films, prided themselves on doing their best to try and escape, even when escape was impossible, and they would almost certainly be caught and shot. You know, there was a sense of, well, whatever we do, we we have to escape. It's the noble thing to do, even if it's futile. Is that how it is? With God, it might be, if you, if you think, I don't really want to know this God anyway. See, it matters that God in his nature is self-giving, loving trinity. I've read before from the Screwtape Letters, here's another quote from C.S. Lewis's book, which is a senior devil writing to a junior devil to train him and equip him for a God-hating ministry in the world, leading human beings away from God and the truth. And in one letter he says this, One must face the fact that all the talk about God's love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own, not because he's absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We devils want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Can you see the difference it makes to know we are created by a self-giving, loving God who has been eternally Trinity? I want an invitation to that family meal. I want to celebrate my identity as one of his creatures, not try and escape from it. 
as we naturally do. And there is more. In him was life. Verse 4. Later in the Gospel, Jesus says that God has granted the Son to have life in himself. Everything else in the world depends on someone or something else for life. You know, we, we need food and water, and ultimately we need God to sustain us. Without food and water, we die in weeks or days. Without God, we die instantly. But the Son, as God, the Word, he has life in himself because he is himself God. And this points to how the word is not just the one through whom we were created, but the one in whom we find eternal life, even though we ourselves naturally are dead, as we thought about in Ephesians. I am the way and the truth and the life, said Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that is true not because Jesus is another prophet, another signpost who points, to, points out to people where they can find love, uh, find life, But he is the life. In him is life. He has it in himself. And what that means is if you want to know God, you just need to know Jesus. And you find Jesus by reading John's Gospel, by reading the Bible. And there you find you will meet with him. And if you know Jesus, then you know God. You know, why doesn't God show himself, people sometimes say. You know, if he's really there, he's hiding. He's making life incredibly difficult for everyone. It would be a lot easier if he would end all the philosophical ramblings of human beings and the religious wars and just make himself really obvious. And the answer, according to John and the rest of the Bible, is he has done exactly that in Jesus. Jesus is the life. If you want to know what the life of God looks like, look at Jesus. But verse 4 That life was the light of men, of people. The light shines in the darkness. Again, there are echoes of Genesis 1 where light brought order out of the darkness of chaos in creation. But now there are hints here in John's Gospel that we won't just be concerned with creation in what follows, but with salvation. To a world in darkness, Jesus, the light of of the world has come to reveal God to us, to show us the way, to give us life. You see, if God was just an eternal loner, could we be confident that he would step into the world in the person of his son to be life and light? We might be confident of his rule and protection, perhaps. But could we expect the life he offers to be one of intimacy and closeness? If he were not eternally loving, if love were not, was not an intrinsic element of his nature because as Trinity there had always been a relationship of love, you know, if, if he weren't like that, could we really expect him to be willing to pay the price of sin himself and offer forgiveness to his children for free by coming into the world as a man and dying a sinner's death on the cross? It's most unlikely. But look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The word understood there is better translated overcome. When when, when Jesus the light came, darkness tried to snuff out the light. And Jesus, God the Son, willingly submitted to those attempts as he went even to the cross. But the darkness in the end could not win. 
the light always wins in the darkness. A few weeks ago, we had the light party, the alternative to Halloween. And I attempted to illustrate this with one of those magic candles that you blow out and it relights itself. Now, unfortunately, I took a little bit of time after lighting the magic candle to explain all the ways in which it looks like the darkness wins. So I had a load of normal candles as well, and I said, you know, when people we love are ill or they die, it looks like the darkness is winning, and I blew out a candle. When we argue with our friends and we fall out, it looks like the darkness is winning. And I blew out another candle. When we experience or hear of wars on the news or knife violence on our streets, it looks like the darkness is winning. <laughs> when we ourselves do what we know is wrong, when we, when, we, when we do the things that we know grieve the God who made us, it looks like the darkness is winning. You can tell I was really getting into the point. And then 2,000 years ago, there was Jesus, the light of the world, the only perfect man who's ever lived, God himself on earth in human form. And did they listen to him? Did they worship him? Did they accept him? No, they killed him. And it looked like the darkness had won once and for all. And I blew out the magic candle, and I waited, and I waited, and it did not relight. It should have done. And, and when I relit it, and blew it out straight away, it came back right on cue. So the key with those magic candles is not to leave them lit for too long. But Jesus is better than any magic candle. See, the light has not been and cannot be overcome by any darkness, not the darkness of war and violence, not the darkness of illness and death, not the darkness of our sin and failure. Do we believe that for our lives? Whatever we are struggling with, whatever is on our minds and our hearts, not just because it's a busy time of year, but just because of life and all of that entails for us. Do we believe the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it? The darkness will not overcome it. The word is life and light. Where does that leave us? If our, if our love for God feels a little cold or he feels distant, maybe we need to rediscover who God actually is. Or even discover for the, for the first time. Because who he is shapes everything he does. Later in John's Gospel, we read Jesus saying, you have loved them, your people, he's saying to God, you have loved them even as you have loved me, he says. That is the kind of love with which God loves the world and he loves his people. People saved by a distant, white-bearded loner would surely remain distant hirelings, not become beloved children, welcome to the family, able to call God Father just as Jesus calls God Father. See, this Advent, this Christmas, forget the guy in the red suit and all his trappings, which will never ultimately satisfy. Take the time to focus, to refocus, maybe, on who God is, the God of eternal, triune relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the kind of God who is worth knowing, the 
kind of God who is worth coming to for life. Let me pray. Father God, we are in awe of who you are, eternal Father, in eternal relationship with your Son, the Word, always with you, and who is himself God. We marvel at who you are, and we marvel at how you have shone the light of the Word of Life into the world. May we draw closer and closer to you in the coming weeks and beyond through the rest of our lives. Thank you for Jesus. Only in him do we have access to this wonderful love and relationship. May we come to him for the life that he has in himself, that he gives to those who are dead, to those who are lost in darkness whether we're doing that for the first time or we're doing that afresh today. Enable us to do that by your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.